Welcome to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. This special episode is a recording from a webinar by the Asia Global Markets team. Tom Joyce, New York-based Managing Director and Capital Markets Strategist, and Matt Fennessy, Head of Global Market Sales for Global Subsidiary Banking in Asia, assess the escalating crisis between Russia and Ukraine, its latest developments and impacts on markets, and what this all means for Asia-Pacific economies. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. Good morning. Good evening, uh, everyone. Thank you for joining. Tom, how are you, sir? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Good stuff. So, yeah, my name's uh, Matt Fennessy. I look after the um, global markets business for subsidiaries based in Singapore. I'm very pleased uh, today to have Tom Joyce joining us. Tom is our capital market strategist based in New York. I've had the pleasure of doing a few of these sessions with Tom over the past 18 months, but this is our first one-on-one session that we'll be doing uh, in the Asia time zone. So I'm, I'm quite excited about that. So um, just as a refresher, Tom has over 25 years investment banking uh, experience across the globe, uh, including in Asia. He speaks with uh, C-suite executives on a, on a daily basis and advises them on the, the macro forces driving markets. But also, importantly, he is checking the pulse uh, of those CEOs, CFOs and government officials on what's keeping them up at night, right? So as we all know, the, the topic of the past couple of years has been all about COVID and, uh, and what impact that will and has had on the global economy. But as we're emerging from that COVID fog, we're certainly seeing uh, some of the old school strongman tactics, shall we say, uh, come out, in, including in the, in the geopolitical space. And no more so, uh, in what we've seen in the past weeks and, and months uh, playing out in Ukraine. So Tom has very kindly uh, agreed to to do today's fireside chat, um, as we're calling it. Um, so we want to make it as interactive as possible with questions back and forth. Why don't we start, Tom, with a question from me? So forecasting geopolitical events and President Putin's policy is very difficult. However, an important part of understanding Russia's decision-making in Ukraine is understanding Putin's objectives. So my question, what do you believe he's trying to achieve? Is it security guarantees, NATO pushback? Is it something else? Is it something more? So, of course, the answer is, you know, we don't exactly know. But we we have, from the beginning of this crisis, as as we all sort of oscillate between, is he going to escalate? Is he going to de-escalate? Is there going to be a diplomatic solution? Is there going to be a limited incursion? Are we going to have a full invasion? There's so many variables to consider. And I think the starting point is that it's very important to do our best to consider what President Putin's objectives are. Um, and I think his objectives are wholeheartedly ideological. Um, I think he has a very strong view, uh, whether we agree with the view or not, on the historic ties of Ukraine to Russia, 
uh, going back a thousand years. I think we all know that he has described the breakup of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Um, I don't think it's a primary driver of, of his actions, but solidifying access to the warm water port uh, that he sees in Crimea in 2014. And, you know, I would put security guarantees lower on the list. Of course, it's, it's important, but I don't think he's looking for security guarantees. I think he wants Ukraine. Uh, and for me, uh, I'm not really buying into this idea that he's escalating to de-escalate, as some have suggested. Uh, in the media in the last 24 hours. And I think that whether or not he continues to move is more of a question of when, not if. And by the way, when could be years from now, right? He was a very patient actor with Crimea in 2014. I was very struck by, we were very struck by his comment earlier in the week, the speech that he gave um, on the eve of moving uh, and announcing troop movements into uh, the eastern part of Ukraine. He said, Ukraine is not just a neighbor. It is an inherent part of our history, culture, and spiritual space. So if we want to have a view on where this is going, the more that we can think about what is important to Putin, the more informed we will be. Of course, the other side of the coin is the constraints put in place from the West, um, and, and, and we will get into that um, certainly in this discussion. So as you say you know, ukraine is is front front of mind for for putin you know with that quote that you just mentioned there and it's been a policy priority for putin you know since he came to office from relative obscurity back in 99 you know over 20 years ago uh so why now what has he accomplished so far and how might that shape his actions going forward well, our view of why now, I mean, there's the short-term issue. I think seasonally, as you as we've highlighted in the first column here, seasonally by doing this sort of at peak winter, and he's arguably past peak winter, uh, that timing informed in part by the Beijing Olympics. Um, but peak winter uh, seasonally, you know, works well in terms of him maximizing his leverage over the West in his view. I think he miscalculated on that to some degree. Um, and I think he has pretty strong views that the West was weak and that NATO was fragmented. And, and perhaps there was some legitimate reason to think so, right? We just had a U.S. president in Trump who had weakened the U.S. commitment to NATO, certainly verbally, uh, had weakened transatlantic ties and imposed tariffs on Europe. Um, we had a sloppy Afghanistan withdrawal from President Biden. We had pre the events of recent weeks, Biden at record low approval ratings, Boris Johnson in the UK, arguably in an existential crisis, political crisis of sorts, Macron, uh, you know, facing an upcoming election. And by the way, Ukraine, comparative to other regions um, in uh, the Eastern Bloc and the former Soviet states, not only is it not a member of NATO, which is meaningful, but economically and politically quite weak. And at the same time, I think he's looking east, Putin, and seeing a very strong and assertive President Xi standing up to the West, shoring his own political boundaries, certainly in Hong Kong, uh, increasingly some may think in the South China Sea and Taiwan. And it is my view that he miscalculated. And this has informed some of the decisions he has made since. I think he has done the one thing that could unify NATO in the way in which it has and unified the West uh, and, and really catapulted Biden from a very weakened position here in the United States 
to one of strength. And so perhaps earlier this week, he looked back at the events of the last couple of weeks and says, okay, if I'm going to backtrack and take a diplomatic solution, right, I'm going to have to face the fact that this is what I've accomplished through a month of escalation. I've strengthened anti-global, uh, anti-Russian global sentiment. I've strengthened NATO and European unity. I've strengthened what's, you know, what somebody says is an inexperienced and weak politician in President Zelensky and certainly his credibility domestically. I've strengthened Ukrainian resolve vis-a-vis -vis independence from Russia. And I've strengthened President Biden's leadership standing on the global stage. And perhaps he was not very happy with that fact pattern and, and, and ultimately has to weigh the cost of that fact pattern against what I think is the much greater costs of military incursion and Western response. Um, so there's a view by many strategists in the West that I listen to and speak to that he has overplayed his hand. Uh, and it's often, we often get into dangerous territory when a leader, an autocratic leader especially, has overplayed his hand. And I think it sort of put us into a position of very, very high uncertainty and unfortunately, uh, arguably increased danger. That's a really interesting perspective, especially, you know, the idea that that he has actually strengthened uh, the likes of Biden's hand. As you say, that sloppy exit from from Afghanistan was was probably the turning point in, in Biden's popularity. I guess, you know, the next the next question is, what is the you know, what is the next move from the West? Right. So sanctions is certainly what um, what we expect and what we've started to see. What do you think the, the scope and the effectiveness of those sanctions will be? And and how does the policy response differ from after uh, Crimea you know, in 2014? So first of all, and I'll get into this, I think we have to be very careful about extrapolating the example of the Crimea sanctions. I think we're, based on the experts we've spoken to and we've spoken to sanctions experts today, by the way, we'll be doing um, in the New York morning, uh, a one hour video panel with two uh, sanctions experts, including um, the global head of, of uh, sanctions compliance at MUFG, but also an outside expert based in Washington, D.C. And, and based on the, the many people that we've spoken to, I, I think we're entering a, an entirely new zip code of Western response. And, and Biden has been under pressure for a very limited response in the first 48 hours. He's been under a lot of pressure here domestically from both the right and the left. But make no mistake about it. The, the sanctions plans that the United States has in the queue underway are massive and they are coming. The reason they were so limited in the first 48 hours is because Putin sort of surprised the West by taking this kind of quasi interim step. He was sort of going in to the eastern region, but not exactly committing troops yet. It was sort of this interim step, this little soft soft step into Ukraine that they weren't really expecting. So they have started with a small first wave, okay, here in the United States with, with major blocking sanctions, freezing of assets, capital access, et cetera, on two major U, uh, Russian financial institutions, uh, U.S. individuals and firms no longer able to purchase Russian debt, uh, full blocking sanctions on just a small handful of five or six oligarchs, um, broad-based sanctions on the Donets uh, and Luhansk regions. But then today, Biden took the more significant step following the bold move 
from Germany's chancellor and has sanctioned not only Nord Stream 2, the company, but its CEO and corporate leadership. And I can assure you that the next wave, should there be any escalation, the things that haven't happened yet, they will be massive, okay? And not only financial, there will be energy sector related sanctions. But number two is what I would point you to, trade related measures and restrictions. Putting Chinese entities, I'm sorry, Russian entities, I should say, and Russian companies and Russia on the so-called commerce department entity list, which would potentially, depending on how they roll it out, limit access to a whole host of technology equipment, defense and aerospace equipment, oil equipment, emerging technologies. These would be significant. Much, much more biting sanctions on Russian elites, on the financial sector, on specific persons, uh, and on Vladimir Putin himself, who notably has, has escaped the first round of sanctions. So we are expecting a massive response from the US. Of course, in Europe, uh, most notably, the move uh, by the German Chancellor, both Europe and the UK, moving fairly aggressively on the financial front. But the Nord Stream 2 move by Germany, I think, caught the market a little by surprise. I mean, let's just sort of focus on this pipeline here and its importance to Russia. It's a 100% wholly owned subsidiary of the Russian state-owned company Gazprom. Uh, the valuation is, uh, and, and some of the revenue numbers we have seen on this are in the, the many, many billions per annum. Um, this is a pipeline that was completed, as we all know, in September, but not yet certified by the German government. And last week, German ch Chancellor Olaf Scholz was in Washington, and it was, there was an extensive amount of pushing from Biden and U.S. leadership to encourage Germany in such an event as happened this week to make the announcement that they actually did. And, and it was somewhat unexpected. And then Biden piled on that today by also sanctioning both the pipeline and its corporate officers. By the way, interestingly enough, the U.S. Congress had already done this back in 2020. They actually passed a law to sanction, demanding sanctions uh, on this pipeline uh, because we were so opposed to it. And Biden waived it on national security grounds. So today he lifted that waiver. And I don't see that waiver being undone anytime soon. So the damage here is reasonably significant uh, already. Um, I think it's worth noting that at least on the financial sanctions, Putin has done a very good job sort of building his fortress balance sheet. Uh, FX reserves at 635 billion, but also a very low percentage of this, I believe less than 20% denominated in dollars. Uh, is, you're looking at some great work here by uh, our EM strategist, Assam Kaman. Uh, these are charts that we borrowed from him showing how Putin has not only reduced the amount of debt, so while he's increased his reserves since Crimea, he has reduced his, uh, his debt, but then also significantly reduced the US dollar exposure of that debt. So yes, he is, he is more able today to manage some of the financial sanctions, but I think we sort of are missing the forest here through the trees if we conclude that the sanctions that are possibly going to be put to work here in escalation scenarios will be quite honestly, in my opinion, uh, potentially devastating in the weeks and months ahead, should he continue to escalate. Very long answer, but I think we're at a stage of this crisis where the sanctions are very, very front and center. 
and very important to weigh this thing un uh, unwinds in the, in, the, in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, I mean, on that, I listened to the replay of the event that you did uh, yesterday in, in Europe on this and, and Essan's comments around uh, the finance, um, you yeah, know, that financial fortress that he's built. Um, what, uh, let me just read his comments here. Russian FX reserves are very strong, 630 billion and bigger than all of Russia's foreign debt uh, obligations. And he's diversified away from US dollars when it comes to non-ruble assets i.e. euro and Chinese yuan in particular. So US dollar is now only 15% of his holdings. So maybe those financial sanctions might be a bit muted by Putin's actions post Crimea. But I guess, do you think that the sanctions generally, you know, you mentioned Nord Stream 2, etc. Do you think they will work? I, 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 well, listen, whether or not they work in, you know, it's very difficult to predict whether or not they will stop Putin from acting, right? We have to, we have to draw conclusions on how much of a rational versus a less rational player he has become. I mm -hmm. think that we sometimes underestimate the damage of the 2014 sanctions to the Russian economy. I think here, given all the comments that you made, the risk of a Russian debt default are quite low, mm -hmm. but the risk of massive damage to the oligarchs massive damage to the banking system and its ability to process payments, massive damage to their ability to access technology and, and, and sophisticated equipment, uh, massive damage already to the Nord Stream pipeline, which will not be undone anytime soon. Um, I think that the sanctions, will they work in curtailing his uh, military, you know, objectives? That is a hard question to answer because that will depend on how rational or less rational an actor he is, but they will do um, damage and have an impact on the Russian state, the Russian economy, and Putin's relationship with his oligarchs and his own people uh, in a way that I think is very disproportionate to anything we saw in 2014. If we have time at the end, I'd love to come back to um, you know the thoughts on on Biden and and how this you know this crisis might actually be bringing things together in the US, um, you know, in that very divided, you know, political system that we've seen. But let's, let's continue on the, the economic front. So more broadly, what are your expectations for the e economic implications of the crisis? Um, and what are the primary channels of contagion? Well, you know, I think the starting point on this conversation is that the timing is terrible, mm. right? Because we're already struggling with a massive supply side dislocation in the global economy, much of it, not all of it, but much of it COVID related. And so this would be, I think, you know, felt most powerfully, at least initially, until you get the handoff to the impact on consumer sentiment and demand. But at least, at least initially, it would be sort of a supply side event on top of what already is a fairly formidable supply side dislocation globally and rising inflation globally. Um, and it will depend so much on how much the sanctions increase, how Russia responds on energy policy. Um, and in the case of war uh, or limited war, how much damage there is to pipelines. But, you know, we, we need to remind ourselves that Russia still accounts for a high percentage of European natural gas, 40 percent, over 50 in the case of Germany, that they are the world's third largest oil producer. Um, 
that they are one of the largest agricultural exporters in the world at a time when food price inflation is rising significantly. Uh, and they are the world's largest exporter of palladium. Another chart that I borrowed here from Hassan, Hassan, our, our research analyst um, uh, based in Dubai, um, you know, he points out this fascinating statistic that Russia accounts for 37% of the world's palladium supply, which is, by the way, widely used in the global automobile, electronics, and semiconductor supply chains. So this is, a lot of this is sort of bad timing, uh, and the channel of contagion, of course, will be felt most powerfully through inflation, but also decelerating growth, and the knock-on effect uh, to consumer uh, sentiment and so forth. So, you know, we, we should remind ourselves that consumer sentiment can be impacted pretty quickly. Uh, here in the United States, we had the strongest consumer spending last year on record. Last year, 2021, we had the strongest consumer spending on record. And in just one, one and a half months of Omicron and rising inflation for a couple of months, we now have consumer sentiment here in the U.S. at a decade low, the lowest readings that we've seen on sentiment since 2011. The consumer is still strong, is still active, but the sentiment readings are low. And so these are the primary channels of contagion on the economic side. From a policy perspective, let me just add that I think that if we had a significant escalation, it would probably have the effect uh, of a couple of things. Number one, I think, you know, we think it would probably cause the Fed to slow down. So even though energy prices and inflation would increase, I think the uncertainty, our view is that the uncertainty of, of a major military escalation would probably cause the Fed to slow down. And it would probably give Biden more leverage over the US Congress to maybe actually get something small done on the fiscal side. And certainly longer term, we would expect a lot more investment or an increase in the massive pace of investment into renewable energy and a reduction in Europe's uh, Russian gas dependency and so forth. So that would be my view on economic and policy impact. And what about other markets? I mean, you, you've touched on uh, the Fed briefly there, but you know, what about other central banks? Um, you mentioned uh, the commodity story as well. What about other market impacts? Well, I mean, the primary channel would be through energy markets, right? And, and, and if you look here at the Bloomberg Commodities Index, look at the, you know, how much it's appreciated um, you know, just over the last two years. Some of this, a small bit of it is Russia, Ukraine, but there are so many, so many different factors at play here during the supply side dislocations of COVID and so forth, massive demand shocks. Um, as Hassan, uh, once again, to quote him, we now have of the 23 major categories of commodities that he tracks, 18 of them are now in backwardation. Um, this is the scenario analysis that both Hassan and our other research, uh, head of global head of research, Derek Halpenny, have laid out. Um, first and foremost, before I even get to these scenarios, let's point out that they've just increased recently, pre the events of Putin, their oil price forecast for year end by $15. So now forecasting year end of 108 on Brent, 105 on WTI, and, and their view is that in the scenario where we get a limited incursion, uh, an escalation in the Eastern Donbass region, and we're not really there yet, uh, it feels like we're heading in that direction, but we're not really there yet, that that would have an impact of perhaps as much as 10% increase on oil prices. And where we had, you know, I think the less likely scenario where we actually had a full escalation across 
Ukraine and Kiev, um, you're talking about an increase in, in oil prices of you know, 40% plus, which would be pretty significant. In either case, the primary channels of, of contagion for us will be felt through commodity markets. Of course, a, a move into safe havens on currencies, dollar strength, yen strength, ruble weakness. Uh, we would expect US Treasury yields, of course, to decline. Uh, and credit spreads, high yield, especially in the, in the US market, which went sharply wider in January, 51 basis points wider, uh, high yield credit spreads do not do well with volatility. I think US dollar credit markets will be more resilient than most markets. Um, we've had numerous days this week where, where deals were certainly done and executed well, uh, but the impact of the geopolitical situation, we've also had numerous days in the last two weeks where no deals uh, were priced in the market. And that's unusual in credit markets, um, uh, you know, by the standards of last year. So I do think U.S. dollar credit markets will be more resilient than commodities, more resilient than equities, uh, more resilient than many, uh, you know, emerging market currencies, but but nonetheless impacted. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised at how well behaved the currency markets have been um, in, in this in this move. And just to just to come back to that oil forecast from Esan and our commodities team, um, just a reminder to everyone that we did a webinar on Tuesday uh, with Esan uh, based on his views around uh, oil. So I encourage you to, to take a look at the um, uh, the recording of that if you if you weren't able to attend in person. Um, we're actually going to turn to a question from the audience now, um, Tom. How would you see the impact to Asia, in particular possibilities for President Xi uh, to risk changing the geopolitical setup in the Far East? I'm sorry, the, the, how, would I, how is China viewing it, you said? Uh, yes, exactly. President Xi and, and how the geopolitical setup in Asia would change as a result. So, you know, listen, I think there was a narrative in the media and, and perhaps true to some degree that certainly early in the Beijing Olympics, you see Putin and, and Xi side by side at a time when Biden chose to initiate a diplomatic boycott uh, of the Beijing Olympics. I think there was a narrative that, you know, she, you know, Biden, you know, I'm sorry, that Putin very much has the support of Xi. And listen, I think there are elements of this, you know, Putin taking a stance against the West, challenging the Western dominated post-World War II architecture. There are, of course, I'm sure elements of this uh, that, that China may view favorably, but I think increasingly as we listen to policy experts, to China experts and others that we speak to, I think there's a growing view that Beijing is probably not very happy uh, with, with the idea of, of an incursion uh, and military escalation. Um, uh, China very much, you know, is a, is a country that we perceive in the global stage to prefer order over disorder, to prefer the respecting, you know, that they're often demanding respect of their own sovereign boundaries. And, and, and this is certainly a situation that would be inconsistent with that view. I think that the leadership in China and in the Chinese Communist Party uh, is very interested in, in Xi and Xi himself. And, being seen as a responsible global leader. I think they are of the view that they are still much, you know, very heavily reliant on Western technology and investment and management prowess and the, the many hundreds of multinational companies that are heavily invested in China. And if you look at a future world where China would 
you know, not that this is going to happen, but a, a world in which China is isolated with Russia is not necessarily a very attractive one for them. Uh, so I think uh, that China is looking at this with, with perhaps much more trepidation and caution. And it'll be interesting to see if they have a role or not in impacting the decision-making of Putin. Uh, you know, I don't have a good lens into that, but that's certainly a question that many policymakers are asking right now. And it's interesting as well, what we were discussing just before the event, um, you know, the fact that, that China is, you know, is, is in a bit of a position of weakness at the moment in, in that it's a, an easing cycle while the rest of the central banks are um, in a hiking mode, right? So they're probably weighing that as well in the whole situation. Well, listen, this is a very important political year for Xi Jinping. Uh, just mm. finished the Beijing Olympics. Um, we'll be seeking uh, officially a reappointment for a third term in November uh, and is faced with a slowing economy. Some oh. of that related to COVID, some of that related to a tepid consumer, some of that related uh, to a domestic property market problem, but some of it also related to a slowing export sector and, and weak global growth is not good for China. Um, and they are the only major central bank really in the world today among G20 economies that is actually easing policy. So, you know, added to the list of, um, you know, a major supply side shock and, you know, growth shock to the global economy is, is, is probably, you know, on the list of things not good for China right now. But I think it's, you know, most importantly, very important for Xi to be seen on the global stage and respected on the global stage as a responsible global leader. Um, mm. and, and, and this is not well aligned with that. So, you know, with that in mind, let's touch on Taiwan then. Any views there about what road, you know, what the roadmap might be there if this is at all tied in with Putin's actions in Ukraine? Well, there's numerous dimensions to that question. Number one, I think it's a very interesting case study for China to watch for what whatever aspirations China may have vis-a-vis Taiwan in the near future, in the medium term. This is a very interesting case study to watch how the West will respond, how they will come together and how strong and unified they will be. So I think that's point one. It's very interesting for China probably to watch here the responses as well as it is for us as well. I think secondly, that people have been over extrapolating a little bit comparing Russia, Ukraine to China, Taiwan. I think they are very, very different situations. I think there's a time dimension to that answer and a strategic dimension to that answer. The time dimension is in the case of Ukraine, um, Putin is somebody whose you know, time is not on his side. He's got another election coming up in 2024. He's getting older. Um, I don't think the outcome of that election is uncertain, but time is slipping away and former Soviet states and Eastern Bloc countries are moving further and further away from a weakened, relatively weakened Russian economy in recent years. Uh, time is not on his side. By contrast, Time is absolutely on China's side, and I think they very much think that way. They are only getting stronger economically and politically. And then secondly, I think it's important to emphasize the strategic dimension. And this is more of a U.S. perspective, and that is Taiwan is strategically much more important to the United States than Ukraine is. Ukraine is strategically important to the U.S. in a geopolitical sense. 
but not nearly as much as Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is is critical uh, to uh, it's a critical platform to control of the Asia Pacific. Uh, it is a massive, as we all know, semiconductor uh, and, and high tech manufacturer. And there's also a very direct and very unique decades long relationship between the United States and Taiwan that was formalized uh, and codified in the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. Um, so the strategic and the time dimensions here are very, very different. But but there are some very interesting things for for China to absorb uh, to observe here in terms of the Western response. It looks like your presentations tomorrow might need a little bit of tweaking. I've just seen a headline pop up. Putin decides to conduct military operation in Ukraine. That's reported by TASS, the, the Russian news agency. So it looks like uh, the timing of this uh, conversation has been quite uh, quite pivotal. Um, yeah, and I think it's, listen, I think it's consistent with if you increasingly think how Putin is thinking, right, I don't think he wants security guarantees. I think he wants Ukraine and he's going to leg into that as much as he thinks he can tolerate and withstand. Um, so, so, you know, all of the policymakers I've been listening to stateside here today, we're expecting additional incursion from here. One thing that I said that I wouldn't mind digging back into is that that U.S. lens. Uh, you, you mentioned that you've been speaking with all the uh, government officials um, over there, and you know I'd be keen to hear the view on you know, more about how you expect this to play out for Biden. And you know, you, you mentioned the elections coming up in China, but you know we've also got midterm elections coming up in in the U.S. What's you know what's your general view on on the the U.S. state politic political um, state of play? I think there's a potential for this crisis, if handled well by Biden, to strengthen his standing. Mm. Um, but I, it may be limited. I don't think that there is a popular perception in the U.S. that he is handling this well. Uh, when we listen to policymakers, I think they are of the view that he is handling this well. But I don't think that is general popular opinion. Um, and so um, I think that um, there's a view in terms of popular opinion that he's, you know, he's guarded, he's slow, uh, that he came out of the gate here slow. That can change, um, but but certainly vis-a-vis -vis where he was in Afghanistan um, and the way his public approval ratings declined after that, there is an opportunity here for him to to project leadership, which I think he's done thus far, and and I think European leaders have also done it, and they've worked extremely well together. I think they've well exceeded our expectations of what at least what we were thinking as recently as four weeks ago. So I think there's an opportunity here. I still think it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to do well in the midterm elections. I think that is more for COVID related reasons. I just think COVID has been so disruptive to societies globally, but especially here in the United States, that rightly or wrongly, that incumbents pay a price for that. Um, I think it. I think it's part of why Trump lost the last election, and I think it's part of why Biden may suffer losses in the midterms bigger than people think. We'll just have to see how it all plays out. Um, but look, it looks like it's going to be a continued interesting, you know, interesting developments uh, coming both out of uh, Russia, Ukraine, Europe, the U.S., and Asia in the in the weeks and months ahead. So we're going to continue um, trying to put out these webinars on um, a fortnightly basis. So, Tom, I'll be knocking on your door 
again soon for, for another topic. So look, with that, I think we'll, we'll wrap things up. Tom, thank you very much. And, and thank you to everyone for, for joining the, the session today. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights podcast. This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries.